There's a popular notion that great people can do anything they want. So whether it's historical figures like George Washington or Martin Luther, Joan of Arc, Albert Einstein, Mozart, or even contemporary ones like Elon Musk or uh, Steven Spielberg or the late Mother Teresa or LeBron James, we imagine that these folks are just so incredible. They're geniuses or have other great skills that we imagine they need little help from anyone else. Except that that's not really true, is it? Because even a cursory look at the lives of these individuals and you'll discover that they need a small army of others to help them implement whatever it is that they are uh, working on. And sometimes they get credited and the rest of the people sort of fade away. Well, the same was true of one of the greatest leaders of the early Christian church, St. Paul. If you just look objectively, no one did more to bring the story of Jesus to more places in the world than Paul. But he was always clear that he didn't do it alone. Ultimately, he gave credit to God and to the power of the Holy Spirit at work through him. But he also mentioned many others, some named, others unnamed, who had helped. By name, in the various letters that Paul wrote, he mentions 31 different men and women. They're all listed on the screen who assisted him in accomplishing his goals. Some of these are mentioned multiple times in his letters. Some served as traveling companions. Others did what they could to assist him. And one of the most important of these was Timothy. For the last seven weeks, we've been looking at a short letter that Paul wrote to Timothy. It's the second of the two that have been preserved for us. And that what we've looked at so far, we've seen how Timothy is very dear to Paul. Amy told us the first week that we began this series of how Paul and Timothy first met. Timothy was just a teenager, and Paul had watched over the years as he grew to be a significant leader in the early Christian church. But Timothy wasn't the only one, and he makes it clear as he ends his letter in a little unusual way. In fact, it's kind of a whimper rather than a bang at the end of the letter because he ends with a list of 15 different people that he worked with at one time or another. One, we'll find out, even deserted him. What's clear is that Paul was a people person. In fact, he essentially begins the section by admitting that he's lonely. He says in verse 9, do your best, and he's talking to Timothy, to come to me quickly. Then adds in verse 21, do your best to get here before winter. Now, as we mentioned in previous weeks, Paul's writing from Rome. Um, he's under house arrest. He wrote the letter early in the fall when the leaves were beginning to change, the days are getting shorter. And it wouldn't be long before travel from Ephesus, which is where Timothy is, to Rome would be impossible because the, the, really the only reasonable route was by boat and the sea routes between the two cities were, for all practical reasons, closed between November and March. So he says, Timothy, you need to get on your way. You need to get here and do so quickly before it's too late. So Paul wanted Timothy with him because he knew that by that next spring, his case would go to trial. Everyone knew that Nero wanted him executed. And while there were others who could have come, many of those were away on business. So you'll see a few names on the screen um, of people who were away doing other things that Paul had asked them to do. And so Timothy, Paul hoped, would be free. And plus, he was one of his dearest friends. Now, not everyone was gone. There was one person who was still with Paul, and that's Luke. We don't know a lot about Luke, although there are a few clues uh, that make him sound like a really interesting guy. For example, in Colossians chapter 4, Paul tells us he was a physician. He was also an historian, which is how you may have heard his name, because he wrote one of the biographies of Jesus that we have in the New Testament. He also wrote the book of Acts. But here's something implied in this particular incident that makes Luke even more uh, impressive. And I'll just tell you it's a little bit speculative, although... It wasn't just suggested by one person. Others believe this may be true as well. 
It's something that Paul did that is entirely selfless in order to remain with Paul. One of the customs of the day is that when a Roman citizen was arrested, they were allowed to bring along with them two slaves to serve them. Now, Paul didn't own slaves, and from the book of Philemon, we know that he thought the institution was wrong. He opposed it. But it's very possible that when the soldiers showed up to arrest Paul, Luke may have insisted upon accompanying him. And the soldiers said, you can't. And he said, I'm his slave. In other words, Luke willingly became Paul's slave, at least to the Roman authorities, so that he might be allowed to stay with him during his imprisonment. Again, this is a bit speculative, but if true, it's an astounding demonstration of friendship. But as faithful as Luke was to Paul, not everyone came through. And so in this list, we have a couple of folks who let Paul down. Particularly, the most heartbreaking of these is the story of a man named Demas. This is in verse 10, when Paul says, Demas, because he loved this world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. I think that's one of the saddest sentences in the Bible. There are two other times, by the way, where Paul mentions Demas, both in the book of Philemon and Colossians. And when Paul mentions him in Philemon, he mentions him as a fellow worker. So this is somebody who was working right alongside Paul. We don't know for sure, but it may be that Paul had big plans for him. Um, but along the way, something went wrong, and we can only speculate about what that was, although Paul gives us one clue, this idea that uh, he loved the world more than he loved Christ. It's possible that the pressure and the danger that they were under got to him. Now, I've seen people come to faith in Christ and get off to a great start. They have initial experience of great joy as the weight of sin and guilt are lifted from them through a relationship with Christ. Um, and we sometimes even tell people, you know, listen, you can't believe how great it is to be a Christian. And it is, but it's only a half-truth. I do believe that there's peace and meaning and purpose and guidance and strength and hope for eternity that comes from a relationship with Jesus. But it's also true that following Jesus may mean difficulty and hardship. At one time or another, we'll find that there are those who don't understand us, and may even oppose us. That's why it's important to be reminded that the Christian life is not always easy. It involves sacrifice and inconvenience. Yeah, sure, with great joy. But if you aren't prepared for the difficulties, it's not uncommon for someone to be disoriented and say, this isn't what I signed up for. And some of those folks will even jump ship. So that may have been what happened to Demas. At least we know he left, he deserted. He abandoned Paul and he abandoned his faith. One day was around and the next day he was gone. Now perhaps he found following Jesus too restrictive. It messed up his weekend plans. Or maybe he objected, um, he liked hanging around rich people and objected to the Christian value of serving the poor and disadvantaged. Or maybe it was opposition, just something he hadn't bargained on. But when things were going well, he was fine, but as soon as things grew difficult, he was gone. Now, as far as we know, that's, that's the story. Demas deserted and never came back. Or maybe, just maybe, there's more to the story. A new chapter that has not yet been written, and because we don't have another letter from Paul, we don't know how it turned out. And you might ask, why would I even mention that? And the reason is, is because there's another name on this list who fits the Demas story, although we do know the last chapter. And this time, Paul has a completely different perspective on this person. And this man's name is Mark. And it comes up in the next verse, in verse 11, when he says, get Mark and bring him with you because he is helpful to me in my ministry. In some translations, it says he's useful. It sounds good. Paul wants Mark around because he's useful. But that's not what he thought about Mark 20 years earlier. 
Mark, who's also known as John Mark, had been part of Paul's inner circle early in the time of his ministry. Despite his young age, Paul had high hopes for him. But when they encountered a difficulty on a trip they were on, Mark suddenly bailed. He left Paul behind and his companions, and he returned to his home in Jerusalem. And Paul was furious. He vowed he would never, ever take Mark on a trip again. A year later, Paul and his friend Barnabas were about to go on another trip. And Barnabas said, let's bring Mark. And Paul said, absolutely not. Barnabas argued that Mark deserved a second chance, and Paul refused. And the argument grew so intense that the two men parted ways. Paul went to Greece with a man named Silas, and Barnabas went to Cyprus with Mark. As far as we know, Paul and Barnabas never worked together again because of this conflict. Well, guess what? Barnabas turned out to be right. Mark took advantage of the second chance. We don't know the details, but clearly he had done a good job. And later, much later, now probably 20 years later, Paul admits that he's wrong. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is helpful to me in my ministry. I think there's a lesson here, actually two lessons here, one for leaders and one for followers. For leaders, like Paul, it's to be willing to give a second chance. Sure, leaders need to be wise. Anyone who's broken trust needs to be brought back slowly and carefully. But forgiveness and second chances must be a part of the equation. Now, in this case, Paul shows he's humble, maybe a little bit too late, but nonetheless, he shows he's humble enough to bring Mark back into into the ministry. But there's also an important lesson here for followers. Your past need not limit your future. Maybe you're asking the question, how can God use me with all of the mistakes that I've made? Well, first, accept the fact that you cannot change the past. Then confess what you've done to God. Now, confession isn't easy because sometimes it's owning up to some hard truths and admitting that you're wrong. Sometimes you have to do things to fix things, particularly if you've hurt someone else. It can be hard, really hard, but it can also be freeing. You see, God is the God of second chances and third chances and fourth chances and 34th chances. Sin doesn't have to be the last word. Guilt and shame don't need to control us. When we sin, one of the tactics the devil has is to try to keep us down. Satan would love for you to wallow in guilt, to think that you're unworthy, stuck forever with plan B, powerless to be used by God. Now, we do need to own our sin. There may even be consequences, but we should not believe Satan's lies. Now, some will say that Satan's primary objective, at least in our modern world, is to try to eliminate guilt. But I think his strategy, more often at least in the lives of many of us, is to make us feel hopeless. So the tragedy of sin is not that it happened, but it's when Satan uses it to strip you of feeling that God loves you and can use you. That's why I think the story of Mark can help us feel a lot less hopeless and a lot more hopeful. When you sin, you need to hear that every sin you've ever committed, past, present, and future, is covered by what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. When you confess, know that you have a gracious God who cares enough to listen to your confession and relieve you of the burden of sin. Understand that when you commit your life to Jesus, you live the life that God has designed for you to live, that God will use you. Now, when Satan accuses us, we need to remember that Jesus says, I love you, I'll forgive you, I'll heal you, and I'll use you. So confess what you've done, commit with God's help not to do it again, and then move on. And let God use you, because he will. That's the good news, the really good news, because if God can make something of Mark and maybe even of Demas, 
He can make something of you. There's another name on the list who did more than just disappoint. He did Paul great harm. And I didn't include his name on that list of friends. His name is Alexander. Verses 14 and 15, it says, Alexander the metal worker did me a great deal of harm. The Lord will repay him for what he has done. You too should be on your guard against him because he strongly opposed our message. So Paul's saying, Alexander, he's a dangerous guy. He may even be the one who bears responsibility for Paul's arrest. We don't know, but it's possible. And Paul tells Timothy to avoid him. Now, Alexander wasn't the only person to oppose a Christian during the ancient world. It was relatively common. Some claimed that Christians were atheists because they didn't worship idols. Others called them cannibals because they talked about the bread and wine of communion as the body and blood of Christ. They were also considered unpatriotic because they wouldn't pledge allegiance to Caesar, only to God. So whatever the reason is, Alexander was out to get Paul. But Paul also tells something to Timothy here that I think is really important. He says the Lord will repay him for what he has done. So rather than take matters into his own hands, Paul leaves the punishment to God. Romans chapter 12, Paul addresses this issue uh, uh, one other time. And he says, in essence, don't try to get even with others. Leave the punishment to God. But it wasn't just Demas who deserted Paul, and it wasn't just Alexander who got him arrested. There's another group of people, a group of close friends, perhaps even including some of the names that are on this list that we looked at earlier, who let Paul down. Here's how it is in verses 16 through 18. He says this, At my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. So what happened is Paul, when he was first arrested, had a preliminary hearing. Uh, the courts in those days allowed uh, defendant uh, legal counsel, and they could also call witnesses. And when that happened, or when that day came, everyone came up with excuses and backed out. So when Paul thought he might have some there to support him, he was all alone. It was one of the worst days of his life, um, and he was all alone. And you would think that Paul would be furious. Now, maybe years before he would have been. Maybe he would have had a reaction like he did when Mark um, bailed on him 20 years earlier. But here, he's much more gracious. And perhaps it's because he realized the pressure that they were under. By identifying with him, they might too be thrown into prison. But the failure here that they were to him didn't leave him bitter. He says, may it not be held against them. And then he told Timothy that even though none of his friends were there at his hearing, he was not alone. He said, the Lord stood by my side and gave me strength. And then Paul, ever the opportunist, says that my imprisonment even worked out for good. And he describes how the good news of Jesus was able to be shared with many, perhaps even senior officials in the Roman government, something that wouldn't have happened had he been left alone. It's in that moment that he tells Timothy, I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Now, I read probably seven or eight different opinions on who were the lions here. Some said it's literal, like the lions in the amphitheater. Others said it was the Emperor Nero. Sometimes the emperor was referred to as a lion for strength. Maybe it was Satan, or maybe it was just the entire Roman system. We don't really know. But whatever Paul meant, 
he believed he'd been delivered, at least for the moment. And he knew, earthly speaking, that this wouldn't last. Soon, perhaps even by spring, his case would go to trial, he'd be convicted, sentenced, and then killed. But even then, he believed that God would take care of him. He said, the Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. So Paul's perspective here is that God's care wasn't limited just to this world. He was convinced of an even greater reality, the reality of God's eternal kingdom, the place that God had promised to take him to. So it's no wonder he ends this paragraph by praising God, to him be glory forever and ever. So Paul's eternal perspective allows him and allows us to hold on loosely to this world and live a purpose-driven life, knowing that the next life is the life we've been created for. At the end of the chapter, in verses 19 through 21, Paul adds a few more names. I'm not going to read the list in part because I can't pronounce all the names. But there are a couple of familiar names in here that I do want to mention, and that's Priscilla and Aquila. They were uh, the equivalent of the first century's power couple. They are mentioned four different times in the New Testament, excuse me, six different times in the, in the New Testament. Uh, and they must have been quite talented, particularly Priscilla. Of the six times they're mentioned, she's mentioned first four of those times, which is highly unusual. It may be that she was a person of higher social rank, or more likely, she was the more talented of the two, and so was mentioned first. In a day when women were excluded from public life and few were educated, um, we're told by Luke in Acts chapter 18 that both she and her husband taught a young leader named Apollos. Now with those names, we come to the end of the section and the end of this little letter. But before we go, I want to highlight a few takeaways that I believe we can, we can uh, find, or lessons we can find from this particular story. The first lesson is that people may do bad things, but God can bring good out of even bad. Now, I've said this before to you, and I'll probably say it again. We should never call something bad good. If something bad happens, we should understand that it's bad. We don't call evil. We always call evil evil and bad bad. But the point remains that God can and is able to bring good out of even the worst of circumstances. That's true in our lives, and it's true in the life of the church. My early childhood was spent in a church that idolized the past, specifically the early church. They read the New Testament like a church growth manual and looking for tips on how to recapture what they saw as the magic of those days. However, the early church had a lot of problems. Just read Paul's letters and you find out about all sorts of things that were going wrong. In many ways, it's remarkable that the church even got off the ground. Imagine how it grew from 100 or so believers when Jesus ascended into heaven to 20 million 300 years later. It's astounding. And the church did that despite its shortcomings and failures of particular leaders. That's why what Paul writes here, I believe, is comforting. We shouldn't take lightly the stories of people like Demas and Alexander. That's why we need to be careful when we're dealing with very bad people. But we should also not despair when things go wrong here or any other place. We need to take care of those things when they do go wrong. But the bigger lesson here is that even when people do bad things, God can and do good things in our lives and he can grow his church. You know, I said a couple of weeks ago, and it's true, that God uses us more powerfully when we're, we live lives consistent and do the right thing, more so than when we color outside the lines. But we also need to understand that God can and will use us even in our imperfection. 
A second lesson is that Paul was human and so are you. Now there's a misconception that the Christian life is all about being super spiritual. Now some get the idea that if they're trying to be that way, they should never admit that they have any struggles or doubts. That's simply not true. Even people like Paul had their doubts. And they also think that we shouldn't need anything, even friends. It's just me and Jesus, that's all I need. But that's not true. Paul here says, I need my friends. I also need a coat for winter, and I need my books, the ones he had to leave behind when he got arrested. Paul got cold and hungry just like everyone else. Maybe he hated mornings and loved spicy food and wasn't kind of iffy on cats, I don't know. But he was human, just like us. And speaking of the human part, remember the third lesson, and that is people can change, so don't give up on them or on us. There will always be those who choose the present world over faithfulness to God and to his church. There will always be some who, in a moment of crisis, desert. There will even be those who oppose the message that we've been given. But as long as we have breath, understand that the last chapter in all of these stories has not yet been written. And that's what makes the story of Mark so encouraging. And he's not the only story like that in the Bible. Think, for example, of Peter. Peter not only deserted Jesus, he denied him. And yet Jesus took him back, and Peter became the most important leader in the early Christian church for about 20 years. A fourth lesson is that the Christian life will include hardship. The picture we get of Paul in this letter is of a man in serious trouble. He's facing almost certain death and nevertheless remains determined to bring every aspect of his life in submission to Christ, and to take advantage of any opportunity that God provides. He may live in the present world, but he lives for the next. He may remain in the present world, but he lives for the next. And this little letter of 2 Timothy is a reminder of Paul's influential life and ministry and that it was marked by persistent challenges and suffering and struggle. And it reminds us that following Jesus involves risk, discomfort, and sacrifice. And yet, the fifth lesson is that whatever you face, God will be with you. Hardship doesn't mean that God is not with us. To the contrary, as Christians through the centuries have discovered, it's in those days and difficult moments that Jesus' love and faithfulness can become most tangible and real. Paul shows remarkable trust in God throughout this entire letter. He's sure that God is with him. He's sure that he'll rescue him, bringing him ultimately to heaven. And he's satisfied that he's completed the task that he had been given to do, to faithfully proclaim the good news to all the nations. And he believes his next stop is heaven. Now, I got to tell you that one of the minor frustrations I have in reading letters like this one is that I don't know the end of the story. I only know where it leaves off. But I'm assuming that the trip went off as planned, that later that fall, perhaps as maybe in early November, Timothy came walking through the door, and Paul must have been overjoyed to see his good friend. Let's pray. Father, may we be faithful, but may we even more put hope in your faithfulness to us. Father, we're confident that you will bring good even out of the difficulties of our lives. Let us not become cynical but hopeful that we and others can change by the power of the Holy Spirit. That even when difficulties come, that we remember that you are with us and you will use us. We pray this in Jesus' name.